Uh, like I said, uh, at the end uh, of my talk here today, we're going to uh, do an exercise together where we sort of offer prayers to God. And so I'm just prepping you now that um, that's coming. And you can be thinking about that and, and settling into the fact that you might have to walk up to the sides over here uh, or to the back to be prayed for if that's more where we're at. I am, uh, I don't know if it's the right word to say that I'm a fan of, but I enjoy documentaries on the Civil War. I've shared about this before. Ken Burns's PBS series uh, on, on the Civil War was impactful to me as a youth. Uh, back, you know, with PBS, when I had PBS. Uh, and whoever thought that still pictures with old music behind it would actually work so well. But he knew, he knew what he was doing with that. But one of the things they talk about in, in the Civil War in particular is uh, the flag bearers. You know, guys who would carry the the flag that was part of their platoon or their regiment or whatever, and and how if that flag went down, if that man was was killed or wounded and the flag went down, that somebody else would come along and pick it up, and they would charge with that. Like it was the symbol. Like this is how we stay together, united around this this symbol. Uh, or, you know, that when when a when a when a country is fought over or invaded, that one of the things that happens is the occupying country or the country who's currently in charge at that moment will raise a flag, right? They'll put a flag up in a high spot that says, we're in charge now. This is our spot. And, and uh, it's just symbolizing to the world that, that, that we are in authority. We are in, in power here. Today, we're going to be uh, taking time to look in Exodus 17 and, and look at the idea that the Lord is our banner, the flag that, that we raise, that we come under, that we unite around. The Lord is my banner, Moses says. The Lord is our banner of protection and, and provision. If you have a copy of the uh, scriptures, you can turn to Exodus 17, uh, physical or on your phones or whatever. Um, at home, I apologize. I don't know that the lower thirds are going to work uh, for your scriptures at home, so you might have to break out a real Bible and uh, look at Exodus 17 with us. But up to this point in the story, the people of God, the Israelites have been freed from slavery in Egypt. The Passover happens, right? The firstborn of Egypt are, are killed and the firstborn of Israel are saved. And they, they flee Egypt. They get cornered in. They get boxed in at the Red Sea by God's design so that he has to fight for them, remember? And he parts the Red Sea and they go through and the Red Sea comes back in on top of the Egyptians killing them and leaving Israel free on the other side to move towards the promised land that they had been promised hundreds of years earlier to Abraham. And we see that immediately they start to grumble and they're scared about where is our stuff going to come from? Where are we going to get food from? And God provides manna for them and quail. He provides water a couple of times. And he does these things. Uh, out of, he provides water out of the rock via the staff that he had told Moses to take with him. If you remember, the, the, God keeps doing these miracles through the staff of turning the Nile into blood, of water from the rock, parting the Red Sea. And at the end of those three miracles of God providing water and manna and quail, the end of, the, of that section says that the people had been asking, is the Lord among us or not? And then today we get the answer to that again. It's almost like a bookend to the story for today. God does all these things and the people are, it's sort of the, the, the question that lingers over them, is the Lord among us or not? And it's been answered in his provision for them. And what we'll see today is that it's answered in his continued protection. 
So if you look at me at Exodus 17, verse 8, I'm just going to read these eight verses, kind of get us the whole narrative here. So this, this whole thing with the miracles has happened. They're, they're at uh, Rephidim. At Rephidim, Amalek came. All right, Amalek is, is the name or a tribe of people. Amalek came and fought against Israel. Moses said to Joshua, Select some men for us and go fight against Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the hilltop with God's staff in my hand. Joshua did as Moses had told him and fought against Amalek, while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. While Moses held up his hand, Israel, or hands, it's kind of plural there. While Moses held up his hands, Israel prevailed. But whenever he put his hands down, Amalek prevailed. When Moses' hands grew heavy, they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat down on it. Then Aaron and Hur supported his hands, one on one side and one on the other, so that his hands remained steady until the sun went down. So Joshua defeated Amalek and his army with the sword. The Lord then said to Moses, Write this down on a scroll as a reminder and recite it to Joshua. I will completely blot out the memory of Amalek under heaven. And Moses built an altar and named it, The Lord is my banner. If you look, if your Bible has a note like mine does, it says that the Hebrew words there are Yahweh Nisi, which is a, the words, a Hebrew word meaning banner. The Lord is my banner. He said, indeed, my hand is lifted up towards the Lord's throne. The Lord will be at war with Amalek from generation to generation. And we read that if you grew up in church and you've read that story before, you're like, yeah, I know that story. That's cool. Uh, that's a weird story. That's a weird story if you slow down and think about what's happening there. Why did Moses go up on the hill? God tell him to? Why is he raising his hands up? Why is he raising the staff up? How long did he have to wait for them to... How long did he put his hands down when he was like, oh, we're losing? Now we're winning. Like, you know what I mean? Like, it's, a, it's an odd story. But what I want us to see in all of this is that it's God who gives the victory. That's the point of this, that it is God who gives the victory. And, and often our question uh, is how? How did this happen? How did this happen? We're American linear, logical, uh, scientific, rational thinkers, right? And so we just go to How? This is a history story. Somebody give me the how. I want to know the details of this. And, and really, the authors of Scripture, they write it to tell us who. They write it to tell us what and why. They don't often get into the how. They're trying to point out what is God like and what are his people like? What is the world like that this is all happening in? So the, the question really is, is, is who, for me, today? Who, 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 is, who is doing this? Why is it happening? What, what's going on? Well, it, it's, the thing is, it's a God who gives the victory. In this story, that's what the author wants us to see, that it is God who gives the victory over his enemies. It makes it very clear that this, this tribe of Amalek, this man, Amalek, is God's enemy first. And he's calling Israel to rout them, to get rid of them. I will blot out the memory of Amalek, and the Lord will be at war with Amalek from generation to gem generation. So if, if you want to go back, this is where Amalek comes from. Isaac has two sons, Jacob and Esau. Jacob is, is, is sort of the chosen one in his family that God says, I'm going to bring my blessing through Jacob, who becomes the 12 tribes of Israel. On the other side, Esau has a son named Eliphaz. Eliphaz has a son named Amalek. 
So this is a tribe that goes way back, separated from the people of Jacob and Esau. Esau's on one side, Jacob's on the other. Jacob's children and his tribe's on this side. Amalek is on this side. And so this, this division that has happened that goes way back there, different tribe, distant cousins of some sort. And so the Israelites start coming through the land, and these distant cousins come and start picking them off. I forget if it's in Deuteronomy or Numbers, but it says that they were, actually what's happening here is they were picking off the weak ones from the back. I'm assuming the rest of the people were up closer to the cloud of fire, and Amalek was like, we'll go for the weak ones in the back. We're not going to get near that thing. And so they're picking off the weak ones from the back. These are bad cousins, all right? Not allowing the people of God to, tra- you know, to, to transition through the land. And what we see through the scriptures is that these go on to be enemies for generations. This people of Amalek is, is an enemy for generations, and they're God's enemy. God's saying, this is a problem that these people are attacking my people. I'm going to deal with them. For generations, this long-term enemy is going to be against the people, and God is going to be against them. Uh, I know I use, I try to use like 50% not sports analogies. Today is another sports analogy. I'm sorry. I am an Eagles fan, which means I pay attention to the NFC East primarily, the division that we are in. And there is an order of long-term enemies within this division. Who's number one? Who's the number one enemy? The Cowboys. All right, who's number two? The Giants. And then three, the team that I all just still want to call the Redskins, the Washington, Washington football team. But there's a pecking order of long-term enemies. We will never forget who these enemies are. We will root against them all the time. And when they play each other, it gets confusing. You have to go to the pecking order to know who you're rooting for. In the Jewish culture, there is this idea that the Amalekites are this long-term enemy. So much so that, that other enemies get, get called Amalekites. The Nazis were Amalekites. They turn it into a spiritual thing and say that sin is an Amalekite. It's this long-term enemy that needs to be dealt with. It's, it's this enemy that comes against the people of God. Haman, in the, in the, in the book of Esther, in the story of Esther, is, is called an Amalekite. It's like these, these enemies that come against God's people, always known as Amalekites, and God is against them, and we are against them, right? So there's this idea of this long-term enemy. But this story is telling us that God is going to get the victory over his enemy, the Amalekites, using his methods. The first method is the staff. Somehow, this, this staff, my friend made me this staff a long time ago, uh, which is actually, if you see, it has this, this vine that grew around it. And so he based this off of the story in Numbers where Moses has to raise up the staff with the snake on it. Um, and so this is not Moses' staff, all right? Um, but I wanted to see this, this weird story happens, right? Using God's method, somehow Moses goes up on a hill and he, he has this staff that is symbolic of God's involvement in their lives, in the story. And, and, it's, and it's his, it brings his provision. It brings his protection. Obviously, it's not the staff, right? It's symbolic of God's presence with the people. And Moses points it at the Nile, and it turns to blood. He points it at the Red Sea, and the Red Sea splits open, and, and the people walk through it. He hits the rock with it, and ro- water comes out. It, it brings salvation to God's people, it provides for them. It brings salvation in the Red Sea and in the water. And, and now it, it brings victory over evil. 
over God's enemies. So somehow, again, like I said, I don't know what's going on in that story that Moses is like, well, it's worked before. So he goes up on the hill. I don't know. We don't know. But he brings it up there, and he he holds it out. In the plural, he's holding it out in his hands somehow. Like, imagine if I told you, keep your hands up for the rest of the service. Right? And he's, and he, thank you, Drew. And he's, and he's, he's holding it, he's holding it out. And God's doing this thing through his method of the, of the staff, but through his deliverer, Moses. See, that God, God is working through Moses, raising up the staff to, to hold it over the people. God picked him to be the one to carry the staff. And the staff is in his hand, and he's, and he's trusting in God's power. And he goes up on a hill. He just holds it out over the people. I don't know if they were supposed to look up at it and be you know, rejuvenated or find hope that they could keep going, that God was with them. It's kind of weird if you're in the middle of like sword fighting, and you're like, okay, Moses on the hill. I don't know. I, again, I don't know. I don't know. But, but he's holding this thing up in his hands on a hill for the, for the world to see. And he gets so tired so tired. He's just, he can't do it anymore. He knows that when he lets it down, for some reason, Joshua and the, the army starts losing, so he keeps trying to hold it up, and eventually they put him on a rock. He's holding it up, and Aaron, his brother, comes along, and her comes along, and they're holding up his arms so he can hold this out over the people, and somehow it enables them to win. It enables them to prosper in military ways. It, again, odd. But the point is, if Moses is victorious and holding his hands up, then the people are victorious. Do you see it? If he keeps his hands in the air, then the people are okay. If he keeps this staff up over the people, like a banner, waving over them, then they are safe. They are victorious if he is victorious. And God uses this method of the staff through the deliverer, but also the people are called to fight. The people are called to battle. We see there's this, this introduction of, of Joshua here. I think the, the text, the author wants us to see that, that Joshua is being introduced to the story as Moses' right-hand man. Eventually, he will lead the people of God into the promised land. But I think what they want us to see is that even Joshua has to come under the authority of, of the staff, <laughs> of God's leading, of his protection of his provision, and that even Joshua, this great hero of the faith, is not going to win this battle if it's not for God's involvement. Interesting. Prior to this, remember the story? God has them not fight. Remember, he doesn't lead them up along the way of the Philistines, which would have been the way they should have gone. Instead, he leads them and pens them in right next to the Red Sea so that he can come and fight for them. But now, they have to fight. Now God is calling them to no longer avoid battle, but to walk right into it. Now he has them, instead of fighting by, by being still, like we talked about before, now he has them fighting literally with swords to go against their enemy. And so what I would argue is that God gets the victory in his timing and through his direction. And Moses, somehow as the deliverer, is in tune with this timing and, and knows when to call on the people to come and fight. He knows when to tell them, hey, I'm going up on the hill, I'm going to do this thing, and it's time for you to go. It's time for you to go out there and fight them. Joshua, take the, take the army and go and battle the Amalekites who are picking off our weak and defenseless people at the back of the line. God is going to get the victory over his enemy, using his methods, in his timing, and his direction.
And so he calls his people to battle. Some enemies, as we see in the story of the Old Testament, some enemies required hand-to-hand combat. Now, we could have a whole ethical conversation. would love to have that. Like as I said before, over your drink of choice, we would talk about that all day, about what's happening there and God allowing violence to happen. I think there's a bigger picture of God's justice there. But God sometimes requires his children in the Old Testament, I would argue, to hand-to-hand combat, to actually be involved in their own deliverance under his leading and timing, to enter the land that had been promised, to go into the promised land, the good land, the land flowing with milk and honey, to go in and to bring justice and bring peace, and to do so they would need to fight. To bring justice, to bring shalom to the land, to make it the land that God had intended. For God's ethical ways to be lived out, they would have to do justice on the people who lived there who were corrupt, sacrificing children, temple prostitutes. They would have to bring justice and rout them and get rid of them. He would have to involve them. Now, sometimes we see, as this narrative continues, that God's intervention is fully on display. That God himself gets involved and does these divine, miraculous things and gets rid of enemies. Right? Jericho, for instance. Like, that's, that's God fully on display. The people, like, don't even have to lift a sword. Like, God does something there in crushing the city. Well... Okay, they do lift a sword in that story, but you understand what I'm saying. It's God doing these miraculous things to battle against his long-term enemies. Dramatic fashion, the Red Sea, Jericho, etc. So sometimes, in my life with my kids, I get fully involved. I intervene. I do the thing that needs to be done for their best, for their good. I don't know that it's miraculous, but... I'm involved. I'm heavily invested, personally involved in the story. I get involved and I come to the rescue in some way. They're running late. I make lunch for them, right? There's my small miracle for the week. Like, Jess was gone for the week. Like, that was my miracle. And I didn't kill the plants, I don't think. But I I personally get involved in my kids' lives. I want to help them. I want to bless them. I want to take care of them. Sometimes, though... I oversee their involvement. I call for them to be involved in the making of their lunch, in the making of their food, or whatever it is. Cheesy example, but that's where I'm at right now. I call for them to be involved. And I would argue that from greater to lesser, involving the lesser in their own process, it helps them see the value of my provision. Helps them see the value of their mother's provision and how much she cares for them but it also helps them to see what they're up against in life. To see what what they have to deal with. Start with lunch, move on to money, move on to cars, move, you know what I mean? Relationships, like all these things. It's, it's, I'm involved. I'm also backing off and letting them be involved with my guidance. Right? I think God in this situation is saying, okay, I've done miraculous things. I'm going to continue to do miraculous things, but I'm also calling you to be involved. I want you to see what you're up against. I want you to see the corruption of the world, the brokenness of the world firsthand. I'm calling you to be involved fighting against it. So the people are somehow in this moment called to, to be involved in the battle. But the point, again, the point of this whole narrative, I would argue, is that it is not a winnable fight if God's not in it. 
It is not a winnable fight for the people of Israel, even the great Joshua, the faithful warrior who will lead the people into the promised land. It is not a winnable fight for him if God is not in it, if God has not called them to it. And what the text wants us to see is that God is the banner, that God is the flag to be raised up, giving provision and protection for the people. It's not just that they, the people of God just get to march off and do whatever they want. They don't get to just go and, and fight whomever they want. God is my banner, Moses says. He makes an altar that says, God is my banner. There are times when Israel will go on and try to fight the Amalekites, and you know what will happen? They will lose. They lose because God said, I didn't tell you to do that right now. Actually happens. They defeat them here, but if God's not in it, they're not going to defeat them. If the timing's wrong, they're not going to defeat them. Clearly, they would have lost this time if God were not in it, if God were not protecting them and watching over them via the staff and Moses' raised hands. And Moses knows, as God's deliverer, he knows that God is the shield, that God is the banner, God is the flag that they should be running to for their provision and for their protection. And he, he fashions this altar. They probably stones of some sort, some memorial that you see this happen all over the Old Testament, where they raise this thing up to remember what happened in this place. And he names it Yahweh Nissi, that, that God is my banner. I love that it's singular too. Moses is like, God is my banner. It wasn't me that did it. It was God that did it. God is my banner. He is the flag I'm flying. He is the protection that I'm coming under. People of God, remember this. God is our banner. And then there's this incredibly confusing bit of Hebrew. Nate, if you could put up uh, Exodus 17, verse 16. Moses builds this thing, this altar. The Lord is my banner. He names it. And he said, Indeed, my hand is lifted up towards the Lord's throne. Indeed, my hand is lifted up towards the Lord's throne. Again, if your Bible has a little note there, mine says, or hand was on, or hand was against. Hebrew, obscure. It is. It's an obscure wording. And commentators and scholars have argued over what is going on here. They're saying, is it the Amalekites whose hand was against the throne? So God came against them. But a lot of scholars think that what's happening there is Moses is saying, the Lord is my banner, a hand on the throne of God. There's this like this, this personal connection to the throne of God where his authority is. It's almost like a rallying cry. For a hand upon God's throne, Moses is saying. That's who we are, a people who have a hand upon God's throne. That is what enables us to fight. That is what our rallying cry is boldly claiming a relationship with Yahweh, a hand on his throne, Yahweh, Nissi, my banner. And Israel is called to live in this reality, that Yahweh is their banner. He is the flag that they rally around. He is the one who's going to protect them and provide for them. And they're called to live this way and to go into the promised land and to live this out bringing justice and getting rid of the people who wouldn't follow God and who were corrupt and doing all these nasty, unethical, broken things to set up a world, to set up God's ethical kingdom on earth where God's presence is there and the land is good and he has a purpose for his people and everything is going well. 
But we see that it's only a matter of time before they come, become complacent. And they think, well, we're pretty good. We did the thing. We got it. We start to not rely on God anymore. Start to become corrupt in their dealings with people, the prophets say. Brokenness creeps into their lives. See, that long-term enemy of sin is actually inside of them and starts to come out in all its ways. And rather than filing and leading and, and living under the banner of God, they're living under the banner of their pride, of their selfishness, of their lack of love for their neighbors, of their using God to get what they can from him. And God keeps calling them back and calling them back and calling them back, and eventually he says, fine, I turn you over to your ways. You want to live outside of my banner? Go ahead. And he allows Assyrians to come in and Babylonians to come in and carry them off into exile so that maybe they will wake up and see that life is better under God's banner. Why am I trying to live under my banner? I should live under God's banner. And the people are carted off. Jerusalem's destroyed. The temple's destroyed. God's presence leaves Israel. And he sends prophets to not as much foretell, but to foretell, to speak truth to them, to remind them of who God is, to remind them of who they are. And then they do give them these promises of that God's going to rescue them, that God is going to bring them back. Despite the fact that they walked away from his banner, God is still going to come in his faithfulness, and he's going to rescue them. He is still going to, to bring his promises to bear. In the book of Isaiah, God says, eventually I'm going to destroy all these other nations. These enemies who are against you, I'm going to cut them down like a logger in a forest. I'm going to chop them down. Chop down uh, Egypt and Lebanon and all these enemies. All these, these enemies, right, are laying on the ground, these fallen trees. And then you get to chapter 11 of Isaiah. And listen to this. He says, then a shoot will grow from the stump of Jesse. And a branch from his roots will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, a spirit of wisdom and understanding, a spirit of counsel and strength, a spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. We get down to verse 10. On that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will look to him for guidance, and his resting place will be glorious. He will lift up a banner for the nations and gather the dispersed of Israel. He will collect the scattered of Judah from the four corners of the earth. Do you hear it, friends? Isaiah is saying to these broken Israelites who've decided to find a banner elsewhere, he says, one's coming, one from the line of David going all the way back to Jesse, one's coming who will stand as a banner for the people. He will lift up a banner for the nations and call all people, all people, not just Israel, all people to come and live under this banner of protection and provision, salvation for God's people and for the whole world and judgment for God's enemies. Friends, today, I want to remind us of the gospel that ultimately it is simply Jesus who is the shoot from the stump of Jesse from the line of David, who became our banner. The shepherd, the good shepherd, Jesus, 
who leads his people with love, with care, with tenderness, with faithfulness, with mercy, who goes up on a hill and he raises up his hands, a banner over his people, his hands out, tired, weakened, losing strength with no one there to help him, no Aaron, no her, no friends, only the nails of the cross to hold his hands there until what? Until victory had been accomplished. Do you see it? It's only then. Only then that victory could be accomplished. God successfully uses this shepherd's hands to win battle again for his people. But, but not just a battle against any, any old enemy. A battle against the long-term enemy of sin and of death and of brokenness. The devil himself, the power of the flesh. He wins the battle over them. Why? So that he can bring shalom into the hearts of his people. See, I would argue that Jesus is the promised land. That Jesus is the provision and the presence of God. And he says, through this victory, I can come and I can live in you. I can live in your heart. I can live in your life, bringing the shalom of God into you. At the altar of the cross, Yahweh Nissi, the Lord is my banner at the cross at the altar of Jesus. Friends, in our brokenness, in our trying to find our lives in, uh, under all these other banners, Jesus says, will you come to me? Will you come and find rest under my banner? Will you stop trying to find it in all of these other things? Stop trying to heal your brokenness in all these other ways. Come to me and find it in me. And friends, the cross is a mystery. The atonement is a mystery. In the same way that I can't tell you all that went on in the fullness of why Moses went up on the hill with the thing and why it had to happen in that way. In the same way, the cross is a mystery. I can't tell you everything that happened there. But I know that what God tells us is, that's my banner. That's my love on display. That's my protection on display. That's my provision on display for you. Come and live under it. Come and find fullness of life under it. So how do we look to the banner of the gospel today? Do we look to the banner of the gospel as we battle against sin, as we battle against the flesh? See, friends, through the cross, we get to put a hand on the throne. Do you understand that? Through the cross, we get to put a hand on the throne. The author of Hebrews grasps this so well. He says, therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness, with boldness, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. A hand on Yahweh's throne through the cross, through Jesus, boldly approaching the throne so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Are you going to the banner in your lives? Are you going to the banner of the cross in your time of need, running to put a hand on the throne through Jesus? 
As you battle against sin and the flesh, are you going to the banner saying, help me in my time of need? Please give me mercy. Please give me strength. And I would argue through the resurrection that comes after the cross, we have the long-term victory. Through the raised hands of Jesus, we have the victory for all of eternity. Under the banner of the cross, at the permanent altar of Yahweh Nissi, of the permanent, uh, you know, the Lord is my banner of the cross, is perseverance in suffering, both because Jesus gets it, he understands it, but also we can persevere because we know that the resurrection's coming. We might not see the victory in every way in this life, but we know that Jesus has secured the ultimate victory, so we will see it someday. So in our suffering, do we look to the cross and say, I see your provision, and I taste some of it now, and I hope for the rest of it someday? Do we see that in the cross, under the banner of this this good God, the renewed relationship with God, that he says, I forgive you. I forgive you. You can be done with that old way. You can be relieved of the shame, of the brokenness. It's over. I paid for it. Arms out. This is my love for you. It's over. Find new life. Come under the banner of forgiveness. His love is like no other person's love. And the cross is the the security of an eternal life, both now, a full life now, and forever. So, I don't know where you're at today. Perhaps you are suffering under the weight of sin, of brokenness, of shame, habits, patterns, family history, It repeats itself, it repeats itself, it repeats itself, and you're like, darn it, why am I doing this? Come under the banner of Jesus. (laughs) Come under the banner of Jesus and find new life. Find forgiveness, find energy to battle those things because they do take effort to battle through the gospel, through the indwelling power of the spirit that is promised to us through the atonement. Friends, my guess is that most of us here are Jesus followers. That at some point we said some sort of prayer, made some kind of commitment that said, Lord, forgive me, I repent, I want to turn and follow you. And so in some ways you've tasted forgiveness, you have tasted the release from shame. But I would guess also that the majority of us are probably in a place where we need to do some hand-to-hand combat with our long-term enemies of sin, guilt, shame, brokenness, family issues, habits, patterns. Would you... Let the gospel energize you to say, this is what has been purchased for me. I now live motivated by that. John 15, Jesus says, abide in me, for apart from me, you can do nothing. You can do nothing. Are you abiding with Jesus, coming under the banner, saying, fuel me. Give me an image of the cross. Give me an image of the atonement, of what you have done for me, and let that fuel me to choose into better things, into full life, being renewed by the transforming of our minds, believing new things, changing our identities so we can change our behaviors, all under the banner of the cross, friends. Are you under the the struggle of being anxious, Uh, depression maybe even, 
struggling with defeat, physical ailment. (laughs) Isaiah tells us, by his wounds, we are healed. We come to him for healing, physically, emotionally, relationally. And sometimes he does it. And if he doesn't, we look forward to the day when he fully will. This is the goodness of Jesus. Perhaps you're tired. Perhaps you just need help holding your arms up. (laughs) I'm going to ask us to put a hand on the throne today. And, And collectively say, the Lord is my banner in some way. Kevin, uh, Wells, and I uh, are going to go back left of the room. And we're going to go back there and ask that if there's something in your life that you need prayer for, healing, uh, you know, relational struggles, whatever. I don't know. Maybe even confession. I don't know. That you would come and be prayed for. That if maybe, maybe you're just too tired to lift your hands up anymore. You need somebody else to hold your hands up. Sometimes we need people to have faith for us. We need somebody to go to God for us and say, oh, I can't even do it anymore. You just pray for me. Kevin and I will be back there. Lynn is going to be back there as well. So if, um, if a woman feels uncomfortable praying with me and Kevin, that's fine. Uh, you can pray with Lynn as well. But my guess is... Um, the, least, the, the less scary thing to do, believe it or not, uh, might be to come to these makeshift weird little altars up here um, under the banner of the cross. Thank you, Dryland, for having these icons of the faith scattered about the room, so we're going to use their crosses as a reminder that, that we come under the banner of Jesus, that we come under the banner of his finished work on the cross so that we can put a hand on the throne. And so there's some note cards up there and some pens. And I'm going to ask that you would come up and you would write something down on there that that you need prayer for, something that you need to do battle with, some hand-to-hand combat in the spirit coming under the, the banner of Jesus, energized by the gospel. And if you want to put your name on it, you can because here's what I'm going to do with them. I'm going to take them and I'm going to pray over them. I pray for you all once a week, Lord willing. And there's times when I'm like, I don't know what to pray. That's what I'm going to pray for. (laughs) But it's also an act of faith on our part collectively to say, okay, Jesus, I'm coming under your banner. Maybe you need to do that today. Take that step of faith to say, all right, I'm in. Again, I'm in, Lord, I'm coming under your banner. So these are the options. Come write something down, throw it in there. If you want to put your name on it, fine. If you don't, if you just need to, if you're just like, you know what, I just need to confess this. Just throw it in there. You don't put a name on it, that's fine. Or if you want prayer, you want to come and talk and uh, you need prayer for something, uh, you can do that. Come back, come to the back with me, Kevin and Lynn. I'm going to pray right now and sort of lead us into that. And then 
We're going to play a video um, about The Lord is My Banner. And I would like you to just respond during that time. And Kristen and the team are going to come up and they're going to sing um, a song or two for us. All right? Just pray with me. Holy Spirit, um, you're here, you're present. And you know, you know what's going on in our hearts and in our minds. You know where it is that we've been running to other things to be our banner, to be our safety, to be our release, to be our freedom, whatever it is. I ask that you would bring those things to mind. Help us see them. The heart is deep waters. Help us see where it is that we're running to other things trying to fight on our own, trying to find provision on our own. And would you help us boldly approach the throne and in your grace to find love and mercy in our time of need. In Jesus' name, amen.